Let's pray. Father, we pray that it would be with cheerful hearts that we submit ourselves to your word today, that we see you as a loving Father. Father, we pray that those of us here who are redeemed would be continually persuaded, uh, Father, and cultivate in our own souls the care and the warmth with which you love and care for us. And we pray, Father, that those that are not yet redeemed, Lord, that you would powerfully draw them to yourself, that you would persuade them of their need of a Savior, and that you would persuade them of your readiness uh, to be their Savior, Lord, we pray. We ask as we look at this passage that you would help us to see the glorious shepherd that you've given to us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is also reflected in Father and Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us to come here to your word and to your ways humbly and joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't have to remind you that a new year is upon us, right? And one of the things that uh, hopefully we can be encouraged about is uh, this idea that the Lord is our shepherd. It uh, is often challenging to really uh, preach some of the Christmas themes in the scriptures because they're so common. Sometimes it's easy for us to really not perhaps pay so much attention to those common narratives. There's uh, likely not a lot of surprise that there would be a Christmas sermon perhaps on Isaiah 6 or on Malachi chapter 3 or on Luke chapter 2. Uh, there's no shock there probably about your expectation and sometimes we of course recognize that our familiarity with certain passages of Scripture might incline us really to miss some things. Um, and, uh, but also their commonality uh, can allow our deeper understanding uh, to be reminded more frequently because we're more familiar with the Scripture. In other words, if you are thinking about, uh, for instance, in this case, the 23rd Psalm, which is likely one of the most common passages in all of the Bible. If, you, uh, if you're more encouraged with a more in-depth understanding of what it is that God is telling us in it about himself, then it would hopefully be that every time you think of that psalm that you would think, of course, about the greater level of understanding that you come to year by year. And also the greater level of appreciation that we have for the Lord as shepherd and also the Lord as host. And so it is with a bit of fear and trepidation that I bring to you this idea that the Lord, of course, is our shepherd in Psalm 23. But for us to really cultivate a greater sense of joy, a greater appreciation for the beauties and the sweetness of Christ as we anticipate him being our shepherd in this, this coming year. And you might say, well, what other shepherd do I have? Well, you know... The way that the Lord has decided to redeem us, uh, of course, is we have our justification by faith, which marks us as those who are redeemed. But we recognize that the 
actual condition of our souls is unchanged in justification. And so what occurs is, is we, we're two kinds of people. We have a new person and we have an old person. And so we're continually beckoned to live out of the new man, as the scriptures would say, and to put to death the old man. And one of the things that I want to try to encourage us with in the coming year, in the beginning of the coming year, is this idea that God is calling us to live out of this hopefully ever-growing new man that's powered, of course, and fueled by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is Christ living in us. What we find in the scriptures is it might be that we're inclined to try to reclaim the old man. But the old man needs to be put to death. And we live out freshly the new man. And so, of course, the way to do that is to be very intent and in following our shepherd. So before us is the 23rd Psalm. Now, the one used to write the 23rd Psalm was not an ivory tower theologian. There are some very lofty themes in these six verses. The writer that God used wasn't a man who was pampered or handled easily by the world. He wasn't a perfect man, but we know that he was one who sought the Lord heartily. And we also know that he was one who was rewarded in his seeking. The 23rd Psalm was written by one who spent his early years as a shepherd. But he's also one who spent his latter years in the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, the one who wrote this psalm, as you're aware, was King David, General David. Uh, he was fully aware and was intimately involved and familiar, of course, with the sights, the sounds, the smells, the horrors of the battlefield. Now, I'm persuaded that that really is important as we think about the way that David writes. We see a tenderness, we see a dependence on the shepherd, but we also see a fully realistic understanding of this walk, this spiritual walk. And David understood its physical illustrations on the battlefield, but also he understood its spiritual realities in his own life as we can think of other psalms, for instance, Psalm 51, perhaps, where he uh, regales in the forgiving restoration of the Lord after his own sin. But we also see that as David understood the battlefield, it would be important for us to understand that in David's day, battle wasn't done using primarily standoff weapons. The weapons of warfare in those days were weapons in which you could feel the breath of your enemy and see him likely touching you. Now, the reason that that, I think, is particularly important is because it is a reflection of our own spiritual walk that we may wince from and pull away from 
the challenges and difficulties, but David will remind us of some very important aspects of that as we press on. David's life experiences encompass the fullness of our own. If you want to continue to learn about your own life, there's no better way to do that than to look at the Psalms. Because one of the things that our shepherd helps for us to understand is he helps for us to understand ourselves. Self-awareness is an urgent need for God's people. And the Psalms reveal to us in many ways who we are. So we're helped in that way. I'd like to draw your attention even before we look at this in particular just simply to the preeminence of God in the Psalm. The preeminence of God. The Lord is. He makes. He leads. He restores. He leads. You are your rod, your staff. You prepare. You anoint. Uh, what we see here is the, the great actor in the 23rd Psalm, of course, isn't the writer. It's the shepherd. It's the Lord. The Lord is working. The Lord is central. It's about the Lord. He is the one, and that would be key. So let's take this one phrase at a time. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, we could take each of these words individually. The Lord, the one Lord. Is. It doesn't say was. It doesn't say will be. This is a present tense verb. The Lord is my shepherd. My. Now this is one of the things that we're going to see as we really consider more fully, hopefully in the future weeks, what it is that the Lord is doing in our lives by way of perfection and sanctification. But one of the most important aspects of that is a confidence that God is mine. He's my shepherd. He's not, he's, not, he's not the shepherd. This is a personal possessive word here. He's my shepherd. In other words, do you have the confidence to say, there's my shepherd. He loves me. He, he is devoted to me. He has warm affection for me. He, the Bible says that he rejoices over me as his sheep. And God would call upon us to see that it really is instrumental, it's critical in our own lives uh, that we see that we have a confidence that God is our personal shepherd. He's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Being like sheep, we can't be our own shepherd. Does that sound funny to you? That a sheep would try to be his own shepherd? It, it's our common experience. We try to shepherd ourselves every day. We, as a matter of fact, can even shape our own understanding of the Christian life such that we actually are the shepherd. But we're designed by the Creator to require 
a shepherd. Now think of that. So the fact that we need a shepherd, and we could consider this with a number of words. We could consider it a weakness. We could consider it a defect. But I can assure you, a healthy sheep is not weak. I wrestle with them every day. And a healthy sheep isn't defective. So the point is, is that our need for a shepherd isn't a defect. And it isn't a weakness. And one of the important aspects of that is because of that, because it's the way we've been designed, it isn't, it, our sin hasn't made us a sheep. Right? It's not, it's not because we have a sinful uh, nature that we're sheep. We're sheep because our shepherd is God. And he has shaped us in such a way as that we uh, are most fully functional, effective, and joyful when we live cheerfully in the realm of being his sheep. Like sheep, we many times think we can go without God, but every time it only reveals that we're dependent creatures. Now, we could even go a little further with the idea of dependent creatures, and we may say, well... A sheep is dependent, but a lion, for instance, isn't. That's not what the scriptures say, though. Psalm 104 indicates that every creature is dependent upon God. It's just that some have a different dependence than others. But nonetheless, as we have mentioned before, there is only one necessary being, and that's God. Everything else is dependent. And it isn't a defect. It's simply the way that he has designed us. Those who have the self-awareness of the redeemed recognize they're more like sheep than wolves. Now, we mentioned this idea that the Lord is my shepherd, but what does... It means if you have a shepherd. Well, it means that you are property. Not only is the shepherd yours, but you are the shepherds, right? Now, how does that make you feel? How do you, how do you like being... A personal possession. Well, how do you feel when someone says, that's my friend? Now, I understand that can kind of sour sometimes, right? What I mean by that is sometimes there's this competition when I say he's my friend, that means that he isn't your friend. 
that's not what I'm trying to, to get at here. What I'm trying to, to get at, and, and really what the, what the idea here with being owned by God is, is, a, is a goodness. I can recall in my Navy days, I always appreciated when the commander said, that's my chaplain. He's not anyone else's chaplain. In other words, I'll fight for this guy. Right? He's mine. I'm going to take care of him. And that's the idea in being owned by God. And that, again, goes back to this very important, this very important idea of being owned by God. The confident understanding, you see, that we're not merely justified. The picture of justification, what is it? It's a judge slamming down a gavel, saying not guilty. Even in the case, when the judge slams down the gavel and says not guilty, are you feeling warmth and love there? Is this likely the man that's going to have you into his home for supper? No. And God doesn't intend for us to stop there with our understanding of who God is. He intends that we move on into the perpetual state, not of justified, but of adopted. Now things are altogether different, right? Adoption has to do with being chosen by God, with being lavished upon with God's love. This is the idea of ownership. The judge doesn't own you in that sense, in our own personal understanding of life on earth here. But the one who adopts you does. Now, I recognize that the justifier uh, of our own lives, of course, is also the one who adopts us. We understand that. But nonetheless, the point that I'm trying to get at is our own human experience. The reality is, is that many who are redeemed, where are they? They're lingering in the state of being justified. And they view the Father not as a loving shepherd, but as a very businesslike judge. And that would be a very improper and unbiblical. As a matter of fact, some writers would go so far to say that is an idol. Now, why is it an idol? Because it doesn't reflect who God is. It isn't God to the redeemed. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. In heaven, when the Lord Jesus walks by, we say, that's my shepherd. That's how we refer to him. That's my shepherd. That's the lover of my soul. That's my redeemer. That's the one who has uh, made for my adoption by the Father, my creator in heaven, who also loves me. That's my shepherd. I shall not want. Our shepherd thoughtfully and omnisciently determines what we need. As such, the sheep are content with the Lord's provision. 
Though they may not have an abundance in the bank, there's a developed discipline and joy in growing content with God's provision. It would be inappropriate to make too much of this grammatical fact, but nonetheless it is important. The scripture says in the English version, I shall not want. It doesn't say, I will not want. I think the point is this. With God as your shepherd, you might miss a meal. But he knows what you need more than you do. And there's a cultivated, growing contentedness such that we will studiously not ask for things that he has decided not to give us. There's a growing contentment with what it is that God has given. I shall not want. Now again, the point isn't here that you don't ask God for things. If anything's worth having, it's worth asking God for. If anything is worth having, it's worth asking God for. But the point in I shall not want, again, is this growing contentedness with what it is that God has given and this cultivated a kind of intentionality where thinking about and literally counting your blessings, you can think, oh, well, look what he's given me here. And look what I haven't really explored over here that he has given. And look at this characteristic of who God is that I've not really thought about. I shall not want. Recognizing that every circumstance has been designed by the Lord for my own personal sanctification. Have you ever experienced something that was really difficult, bad, painful? And then later you look back and you say, the Lord was doing something there that I wouldn't have done myself. And I'm the great beneficiary of it. We typically focus on questions such as, why have you allowed this in my life? Why don't you come through for me? In all of David's experiences laid down in the Psalms for us, that isn't typically what he spends his time on. He spends his time making requests, actually. Oh, Lord, please use this for the betterment of my soul. Oh, Lord, please help me to more highly value the fellowship of suffering with my Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2, he makes me to lie down. He makes me to lie down. The stem of this verb in Hebrew implies there's a certain compulsion about it. He causes us to lie down. We have a common human experience in this regard that I think is helpful. The little child that needs a nap. If he shepherds himself, he won't have one. But he needs one. 
And so mother or father makes him lie down. Now what we have here in the making to lie down in green pastures and leading beside still waters is nothing less than a comprehensive plan for physical provision. The green pastures and the still waters. Well, you say, well, I, I, don't, I don't need that. I don't need to lie down. I don't need the green pastures, the still waters. I don't need that. But the Bible reveals that a life well lived requires rest. Being a shepherd, or rather being a sheep of our great shepherd, requires rest. It's the way God has made us. You know, he could have made us so we didn't need rest. That would be simple for God. He could have made us so we don't need to eat. Uh, there's incredible vulnerabilities and limitations in our life because we need to eat uh, and drink and rest. Those are incredible limitations. Some of you uh, despise those limitations. I mean, sometimes I do myself. Oh, God, I don't have time to sleep. No, you're going to sleep. You're going to lay down anyway. He makes me lie down. He has a comprehensive plan for my physical care. But the Bible also reveals in verse 3 that our physical care isn't the only thing that's necessary, right? Because we're two-part beings. We're physical and non-physical, right? We have all this physical stuff, right? We have blood, bones, and everything in between. But we have souls also. We have non-material portions of our lives. Those things are internal He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He has a comprehensive plan for spiritual restoration as well. Now, perhaps it's here that we see even a more deepening importance for the Lord being our shepherd and not someone else. Well, why is that? Well, because most of us have these secret little plans to restore our souls. Most of us have secret little, little plans. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean the stash of chocolate that you have. I mean the playing of video games when you come home from work. I mean the, the other things that, that you long for and look forward to and feel that that is the way that you are brought back to wholeness and restored. That's what I'm talking about. Chocolate, coffee, video games, shopping, these things are obviously not bad in themselves, right? But if those things you're looking at to restore your soul, there's two things that are going to happen. Don't forget that 
there are two entities that very much love your soul, perhaps more than you do, God and Satan. God will never let you be satisfied trying to restore yourself with those things, but Satan will urge you on. And he'll say, no, no, just do it more. And finally the day will come when you'll feel satisfied. And what we know with growing self-awareness in the scripture is that that day will never come. But at the end of our days, we'll say, oh Lord, oh Lord, what have I done? I've been my own shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The paths of righteousness and obedience of love, not compulsion. This changes everything, by the way. Our understanding of God as shepherd, of God as love, uh, loving us warmly as being with us. This is one of the most important aspects of our own God is that he's with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's walking with us. He's on the road with us. He's not a balconeer. He's a traveler. These paths that we walk, these right paths of righteousness, notice there's a plural there, paths, plural. But what we see isn't that there's a multiplicity of ways to get to God, but what we see like we'll be reminded of in Pilgrim's Progress, is that I take this path of righteousness here, and when I get there to that station, then there's another path of righteousness that I get on to go here, and then I see that when I get there, I go over here, and I do that thing, these paths of righteousness, for his name's sake. For his name's sake. Well, who else's sake would it be for? Do we not want bragging rights for our own righteousness? But it's for his sake. For his sake. Leading, by the way, shows up two times here as a verb. The first time he leads me beside still waters. We have this idea of providing for a a station of refreshment. But in this second... uh, place where leading is he leads me in the paths of righteousness it's a different word it has to do with governing and guidance he leads me in the paths of righteousness even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death Most people think or hope for a quiet death. And I think this may be one of the places where the author used on this psalm is most important because in his mind, the valley of the shadow of death likely had something to do with the physical battlefield. The valley of the shadow of death has to do with the sights, the smells, the sounds, the horrors of warfare. But there's something that's very, very important. It's the valley of the shadow of death, not the valley of death. 
it's proverbial in our own culture that we shouldn't be afraid of shadows. That's why the psalmist says, I will fear no evil. Right? Our Lord indicates in Matthew 11, verse 12, that these paths of righteousness, which are the only way to the kingdom, are taken by force. The idea there is that there aren't any easy paths. In other words, the way to heaven, guided by our shepherd, certified as something that will be 100% successful, still involves incredible challenges that often are compared to a battlefield. But our shepherd is with us. It's going to be hard, right? There's no easy day, as it were. But we can, with great courage and joy, press on. The challenges and difficulties, of course, don't amount to some sort of payment. Jesus has paid the total price for every part of our salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, those, uh, those words have to go together, of course. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. If you separate those, what do you have? Well, maybe the bravado of the 1980s clothing manufacturer, no fear, had nothing to do with Jesus, by the way. I'll fear nothing. What does the proverb say about that? <laughs> it says the man is very confident and bold just before he dies. No, I will fear no evil because you are with me. We press on in the face of challenge and difficulty. The valley is real, the temptations can be paralyzing. The greatest care God has for his sheep isn't in the preservation of our physical lives. The death of a man is not the mark that God has removed his hand. Often because we're most quickly prepared to pray for physical things, we may also be inclined to think that God's greatest expression of care is in physical care. But that, that's not true, and Psalm 91 really reveals the same idea. God's greatest expression of care and shepherding warmth for us is for our spiritual well-being. He has all of this well in hand. He knows the kind of calorie intake that you need. He also knows the kind of place that you need to lay down. He understands those things. And his purposes and plans have far more importance than simply our own physical care, but they have to do with an ever-deepening and joyful fellowship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
we have even a, a greater level of his participation with us. You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We have not only presence, but comforting presence. I mean, how many of us have been around people that weren't comforting? This guy's right here. But I'm not feeling the love. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, the rod uh, has to do with this sort of protective idea. Apparently, the Middle Eastern shepherds, uh, when they were young, they would pull a sapling out of the ground, uh, and they would finish that sapling. They would cut it off short, maybe this long. It would have a root ball on the end of it that they would clean up and take care of. And so what you have is kind of this club thing. Uh, and it would allow them, of course, to use that as a protective device against things that would, wolves or things that would harm the sheep. Uh, they could throw it, you know, uh, um, you know, at things to harm them or, you know, perhaps sort of like a teacher throws an eraser to get someone's attention. They might do that for the sheep as well. But we have this rod and also we have the staff. The staff was a device that really was used as a provision for support, primarily for the shepherd. Think of a walking staff. Think of the Old uh, Testament picture of the old shepherd leaning on his staff. He he he's not leaning on his rod, right? He's leaning on his staff. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They're pictures of physical and spiritual provision, as well as indications of the presence of the shepherd. If his rod and staff are there, he's not far behind. You know, when I was a little boy, apparently when my mother and I went to visit somewhere, she took off her shoes for me. The reason I wanted her to take her shoes off, because if she took her shoes off, I knew she wasn't. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. They're the shepherds. Those are his tools, right? And because of it, I will fear no evil. He enables us to walk this path. We see in verse 5 a transition, really, from shepherd to host. You prepare a table before me. Now, this is a unique aspect of our servant Savior. We know one of the unique aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ that is revealed in the New Testament is this idea that as our host, as our servant Savior, he serves us at the table where you would think that it would be a very different picture. And we see that here in the 23rd Psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. Those who are enemies to the great shepherd, enemies to all that is right and good, will look on while the great shepherd of the sheep lavishes all that is good upon us. We can also see a picture of this in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. 
We can see the Lord's table communion here. We can see the anointing as comforting and honoring. We can see a picture of abundance. My cup overflows. That's our shepherd. In this last phrase, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Now, what we have here uh, is really a picture of warfare. So when we know that when we're redeemed, when God saves us, not unlike David's battle days, we, as it were, cross the line of departure. You know, the line of departure in battle is that's the place where when you step into that, you are in battle. Your physical location has just transitioned you from a non-combatant to a combatant. You are on fighting ground. And you need to be prepared to be pursued by your enemies. And that's the picture here. Goodness and mercy shall follow me. Well, in battle, in warfare, who is following me? Well, who was David running from? He wasn't running from his own army. He was running from all those guys behind him that wanted to kill him. But in this picture, what we have here is that goodness and mercy will be ever crowding out our enemies behind us. And so as we walk with our shepherd, what's happening behind us is this. His goodness and mercy are wiping out our enemies behind us so we have no reason to fear. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, not my pursuers, right? The psalmist has crossed the line of departure with his redemption, and enemies have been hard upon his back ever since, but because of our calling under God, these enemies are crowded out by God's goodness and mercy. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it by the grace of God to heaven. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life as a means of which I'll not be taken captive or killed by my enemies, but I will enter into the house of the Lord. Never to leave it. The great general David longed to worship God and give him thanks for all of his benefits. There's something bigger here than us, and he is God, and he's worthy of our trust and of our worship. That's where we're going, right? That's where we're going. Let us pray. Father, help us as your people to be encouraged by this great psalm, these six verses, encapsulate our very lives from beginning to end. But more importantly, they encapsulate you, your character of who you are, our Lord, our Savior, our Shepherd, our Friend, our Redeemer, our Justifier, but also our Adopter. You're with us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to more fully persuade ourselves of these truths moment by moment.
for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Share.